0: Welcome back to Resident Reels, everybody, with your favorite podcasting hosts. If I sound silky smooth this go-round, it's because I finally got a new microphone. Uh, So this episode will be
1: riding the high of that. This is Adam. I'm Chandler, and I'm so happy and excited for Adam's new microphone. That is (laughs) all I am happy for today. It is bringing me such joy for him waking me up at the crack of Dawn to record this episode, yep. Because you know we're still split in different time zone, and he's like ten a.m. my time, and I'm like I gotta get up at like seven to like function. I did acknowledge that it was going
0: to be horrible, and that's why I asked and did not tell. Okay, <laughs> this is
1: true. I mean, I commit it for the art, right? I. You sacrifice for the art you make. Yes, there we go. Or whatever. Yeah. How's it been going so far with you? It's been going
0: good. I am uh, currently, I just travel all the time, which is not a bad thing. But I, I did just get to spend like a week in my actual new apartment, which is the most time I've spent there since I started paying rent in October, which is crazy. Before this, it was probably a collective 10 hours in the apartment. And so I actually got to like, I don't know, put up shelves and like unpack the rest of the boxes and all of that kind of stuff. And obviously spend some nice quality time with my girlfriend there as well. So I've had a I've had a really nice, solid week.
1: Crazy. I mean, it's, it's great. You're like finally making your apartment a home, you know, and it's not just this like obscure idea of a place where I sometimes go to sleep at. Potentially or something.
0: Yeah, right. We put up like our little Christmas tree that I bought um, in Baltimore last year. The, The living room at least is very like Christmas now. So that also made it super homey. How about you? What have you been up to?
1: I've I've just been trying to catch up and stay ahead with various work and projects and stuff. That's kind of just all been it, dodging, waiting for the holiday stuff to swing in further. I mean, as you can probably guess, we're recording this way in advance, knowing that the holiday season will put a lot of time rest- restrictions on our time and everything so we're recording episodes far in advance so we don't you know have any delays for you listeners out there <laughs>
0: we do our best
1: <laughs> but yeah i mean otherwise i'm just trying to like kick off streaming for myself hopefully playing some video games on twitch and when i've got that figured out i'll i'll share the deets if people want to enjoy me doing stuff
0: definitely some cross-platform uh promos there you advertise twitch on here and on twitch you're like also i talk about movies uh if you want to listen to that ever Uh, (laughs) exactly
1: exactly that's what you do
0: or better yet just play one of our episodes uh over top you playing uh a video game that you're you're streaming it's perfect you're totally right
1: Totally right. Be like, everyone's going to force listen to this. I'm not actually listening to it. They're just forcing everyone else to listen to it. Sounds good. Movies today, what are we chatting about? So today we have
0: our theme of new beginnings, which, you know, kicking off the the... January season everybody makes their new year's resolutions. So talking about just taking some some life turns. So Chandler, why don't you kick us off? What was your movie for this week?
1: So I chose the 2011 film Win Win, written and directed by Tom McCarthy. Uh, it stars Paul Giamatti. He's kind of like this main character we follow through this. I struggled trying to find a movie for this topic because Adam made it so weird and vague, and so I was just, like, spracking my brain trying to figure out what movie to pick, and then I just remembered this one that I did watch, like, 10 years ago when it came out, which is crazy to think that, like, this is that old and it, it's reminding me of my phase of loving Paul Giamatti and everything he was doing because he was like in the, I, I want to say it was an HBO series called Adams where he portrayed John Adams, our second president of the US and how I like love the acting in that show. Like, yeah, I went through a Paul Giamatti phase that I forgot about in like high school. It was crazy. So I have a a very
0: brief story. It's one of my few claims to fame in high school. So listeners, one of your first introductions to Paul Giamatti might have been through the movie Big Fat Liar, starring Frankie Muniz and Amanda Bynes as well. And that is the movie where they turn him completely blue as one of the pranks because he's playing this just like asshole movie big shot. In my AP US history class in high school, we watched segments of Adams with Paul Giamatti and none of us could really get into them, but it was absolutely because of just the nature of the way that class was set up. Like we all loved that class, but we also were like, please, dear God, I can't wait for this class to like never exist ever again. And the teacher was super cool. It's just like It was an interesting dichotomy of things. Anyway, in the middle of class, I uh, made a meme back when memes were like, I don't know, actual image cards with like weird block lettering. That was a picture of Paul Giamatti blue in big fat liar. And the words were just John Adams is pissed because that was the title of the episode that we were watching. And I airdropped it to the class and I was like the coolest kid for like 15 solid minutes. Everybody thought it was super funny. Um, And so that is my that is my small story about Paul Giamatti in the Adams series, which is actually arguably good.
1: Wow. Crazy. I was I was preparing myself for anything because the last time you said fun fact claim to fame. It was like Bob Odenkirk's nephews. <laughs> so I just sitting on my edge of my seat and it's like, no, you just uh, memed it up. That's all. That's cool. That's great, though. Yeah, I
0: just memed it up. That's why I said That's why I said high school claim to fame. You know, where I was like, I was cool in high school for like five minutes. <laughs> my time keeps getting shorter. It went from 15 to 5, but
1: you know. It was... So yeah, uh, so Win Win is just this kind of a sports comedy drama f- film. Like, It focuses around wrestling, but not as much as like a sports film focuses on like a sport that it's looking at. It's just like a plot device, I would say, I guess, more or less. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Which I found out from Tom McCarthy, the director and writer of this film, that he was uh, working with a friend. I think it was Joe Tabani who's helped write the story for this movie. That they wanted to write a sports drama, but then realized that the story they were crafting turned out to be a family comedy drama that had a sport within it. Which is kind of funny that like that was just the process and how that like worked out. I did not find much else behind the scenes stuff, just like a couple interviews. So there's not a lot, but like people did love this show, not show this movie. A lot like it did really well critically and had a lot of good audience score, but it gets compared with McCarthy's other works because he also did the visitor and the station agent and they're like these other dramas that are like I know of the visitor and it's like a heavy drama, but like it's really yeah, good me too.
0: I would not ever try to compare the two movies in the slightest. Right.
1: I guess that was like a 2010s type dealio with critics and directors and stuff. I I feel like we're very much past that nowadays. We're like, we just let artists kind of just do whatever. And, you know, critics, whatever critics say don't matter very much, (laughs) sadly. I mean, facts. Yeah. Social media breaks everything, I feel like. So this movie centers on Paul Giamatti's character, Mike and he is he's an attorney and he just he's like a local town attorney his family live in jersey they're out in new jersey so there's a lot of like jerseyisms that like is a very east coast jersey thing of like mentality of people which i love because it was just like so grounding of like americana in a sense like regional americana stuff and it was just like i you don't see this much anymore because you know social media has broken that I feel like as well it was I don't know it was interesting to like be like, "Oh, this feels real, more real than a lot of other things I've watched kind of so the movie just straight up starts out with Mike kind of like everyday life getting up and going through like a routine to get to work and stuff. It actually starts with him jogging, so he does like a morning jog, and apparently it's like a new resolution of him to try and stay better fit or we learn has an ulterior motive to help calm him down because apparently he's really stressed out and we kind of see this in like his like normal day of trying to get the day started and everything and just problems and troubles keep piling up like he's got two daughters two very young daughters one's learning how to speak and swears a lot which is hilarious so funny <laughs> but like they have a dead tree in their front yard that he needs to get rid of, and he's been trying to like call someone to get it done. He has been trying to get in shape, and he's not in the best shape, and it's an uphill battle for him. Uh, when he gets to work, the work's boiler is like ancient and could explode at any minute. And it's like an $8,000 repair or something. And then also the toilet's not flushing. And it's their only toilet in the whole office. So it's just like, we just learned that like Mike has just got problems and he's got a lot of stress to the point where he literally has an anxiety attack, a stress attack where like his part of his body seizes up and it like, it looks like heart attack symptoms. Like his, he's jogging with a friend and the friend panics and it's a hilarious scene because it's very comical because he, the friend doesn't know what to do. And he's like, are you, are you having a heart attack? And he's like, no, 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 I'm fine. Don't worry about it. I like, I'll call an ambulance. And He's like trying to pull out his phone from his pocket and then throws it into the nearby lake and he's just in this full panic. And Mike's just like, no, no, calm down. No ambulance. I'm fine. I just need to breathe it out. And then it's just like, it's just a big panic attack that he's having and he has seen a doctor and the doctor's like, you just need to try to eliminate stress. And like, that's the only help he has. And so that's why he picked up jogging to try to <laughs> calm himself down. Because we also learn his business as an attorney is not doing well, going towards bankruptcy. So it's he's very stressed out because it's a business he started himself as an independent attorney. So this man is just this everyday family man who is dealing with a lot of usual problems that everyone could face in their lifetime. So it's very grounding in that of like, oh, we all go through financial troubles to different degrees. Like we all have our hills and valleys. It's good it becomes a very relatable story that quickly becomes messy and complicated because family issues are involved. We also learn that not only does Mike during the day is a an active attorney, but at night he moons lights as a wrestling coach. And it's For his alma mater high school that he went to, where he wrestled at, he volunteers as a coach for the high school. And we learned that the wrestling team is not very good, like at all. Super bad. So bad. (laughs) I am not the biggest wrestling fan, but this movie did bring me back to the few times in middle school that I went to wrestling matches and stuff like that. I just find the sport a bit bizarre, but that's just me because I I think I grew up watching a lot of, like, WWE and stuff like that, and that's more theatrical wrestling.
0: Yes. (laughs) I was going to say, I've never been, like, actual, you know, competitive wrestling interested, but definitely, like, WWE, you know, world is, yeah, is my jam. Still my
1: jam. But we learn uh, after, like, getting... having a day with Mike and like understanding him as a person that one of his clients is this old man who has early onset dementia. So he's struggling and he's kind of been his, he's been his state appointed attorney. And so he's been trying to help him figure out stuff and it's dealing with his financials and everything. And he has a temporary caregiver at his home and this is leo we're talking about leo is this elderly gentleman going through dementia mike realizes that the caregiver gets paid a healthy check every month to take care of this man who is still pretty self-sufficient but needs proper care so he decides when they go back to court to kind of like deal with it because leo's only Been required to go to court because of he had some sort of he lashed out in public and caused a little bit of trouble. And so he's dealing with repercussions, but like he also doesn't fully understand it because his memory is not super solid all the time. And so he gets confused of where he is every now and then or who he's talking to or why things are happening and he just gets confused mainly like in the moment stuff um is like his long term is still pretty strong and especially if like you build a healthy relationship it's still pretty strong it's mainly just like his short-term memories struggling a little bit and understanding what's going on immediately around him at times for being a movie from 2011 i
0: feel like leo's character portrayal was very tasteful and, and honestly, like very accurate to somebody of that age who is like starting to have the more visible signs of dementia that like other people notice outside of just like immediate family. And I was glad because I think sometimes it's easy to like tip that scale the other direction and just kind of make it a little bit insane and, you know, like a little not realistic. And I felt like this was actually done really, really well.
1: Yeah. They did the smart thing where they didn't use it as a comedy tool. It was just like, this is a real person with this real problem. Like yes, funny circumstances can happen surrounding it, but we're not going to use it as a tool for comedy because that would definitely feel insensitive and problematic. Which I think was really smart and really clever and well done. So like like I saw Leo as this like really sad character who was just very confused a lot, but like he made me laugh though because he's like a funny person. You know he he was a character. He had depth as a person too, which was great. Like props to the whole cast. Like everyone's done did a great job in this movie. It was like it was a great showcase of just everyday people and having depths to those characters and they're just not like this like cardboard cutout of somebody which is like really refreshing of a movie because i didn't expect that re-watching this movie i was gonna say and this movie with the plot
0: could have been so easy to have those cookie cutter characters and everything
1: so mike hatches a plan to kind of become leo's guardian and he does this kind of like in the courtroom in the final hearing with leo because the state's kind of decided that they're going to just put him in a elderly care facility because the state doesn't have any more resources to hire a caregiver to keep Leo at home. Because Leo's big thing is like, I want to stay at home. I paid for this home. It is my last legacy. And it's this big thing. And also, it's like close to the park that he loves, that he can walk to. And that becomes a big Thing later, a bit later in the movie. So Mike's like, you know what? I can do that. But we also like see he's 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 doing it because he's financially unstable and he's willing to make bad choices to try to reduce the stress in his life. So it's like it's a very human choice, but it's not a great choice because he's like, oh, I'm just gonna put him in an elderly care facility anyways and still take the paycheck and handle everything and doesn't tell his wife for like two weeks after he's made this decision, which is like crazy of like, you're taking care of another human being as a guardian and you chose not to tell me. We learn more of Mike's character of like feeling like he needs to be in control a lot. There's a lot of him feeling like he needs to be in a lot of control because that will help him reduce the stress in his life, which he he does learn through this movie that like that's comes with a cost, depending on the choices you make to do that. So like things kind of go semi-well as Leo's in an elderly care facility. Like winter's rolling around. So Mike is like after church with his family, he's like, I need to stop by Leo's house to turn off the water because it's gonna it's gonna start getting cold and I don't want pipes to burst and deal with like, you know, a whole mess of Stuff And when they get there, there's this 16 year old kid sitting on the porch and Mike and his wife, his wife is like, who's that? And Mike's like, I don't know. I'll go figure it out. (laughs) So he walks up and he's like, hey, how's it going? And the kid's like, fine. And it's this kid plays being a 16 year old so well. Turns out this kid is kind of just a kid. He's known for wrestling and that's why they cast him in this movie like he has like no acting chops he's just like a pretty good wrestler i think this is like still his only acting credit to my knowledge as well good for him that's awesome but he's just like i'm very confident about wrestling i'm not so confident about acting but they said just to be myself and that seems to be doing the job and i'm like you go you you know like because the direction does so well in understanding people's abilities and their craft like bravo because you're able to get like some top tier actors like paul giamatti and amy ryan and jeffrey Tambor to like be like somehow at the top of their game in this like little comedy drama film but then have a bunch of amateurs and children like perform well too and not look like out shined or outclassed by their fellow castmates like it's so well done because you just feel for the reality that this movie is so grounded in so mike meets this kid that we learn is kyle and he's asking him why he's there and we learn that kyle is leo's grandson and he's kind of run away from home and home for him i believe is in ohio if I'm not mistaken. And so Kyle is looking to stay with his grandfather. And Mike kind of like lets him know that like, oh, I'm taking care of him. He's in an elderly care facility. I can take you to him. He's got early onset dementia. And Kyle's like, cool. Like typical 16-year-old teenager that's just going with the flow, not going to like try and get in the way of anything. And so he kind of meets with Leo and they, they hang out. And then we learn further why Kyle has run away from home and it's his mom is a bit of a messy person like a mess of a human being like she's currently we learn in drug rehabilitation we, we're not sure exactly of what but she's it might not even be drug rehabilitation she's just in rehab for some sort of abuse they hint at drug and alcohol, but it's very kind of like unsure. But We learned her current boyfriend is abusive to Kyle specifically, and he was kind of just fed up and left. And we later learned that he, he also lashed out at his school back in Ohio, and that got him kicked off the wrestling team and jeopardized him as a student. So he's just kind of like in this rocky place of just feeling like... He he is a kid who doesn't have a support system. Like that's that's pretty much what it is and that sucks as a teenager. Like you're you're trying to start carving a path for yourself but you still need some sort of guidance and support for when you do fail because you don't know anything yet as an adult. You you haven't fully matured yet. Like, you know, there there are still things you just don't know like how to how to react, how to process some emotions still, you know, because you're still, uh, your body's changing and it's a mess. So Kyle just kind of hangs out with Mike's family because they don't know what to do and they can't get uh, his mother, can't get in contact with his mother because the rehab won't, like, let them talk to her directly. She can call them, but they won't force a conversation. So they just kind of take on Kyle for a little bit. So Kyle kind of just, shadows Mike for like a couple days, goes with him to work. And, you know, he visits Leo when he gets bored and comes back. And then he goes with Mike to wrestling practice. I also forgot, everyone calls him Vig. He's played by Jeffrey Tambor. And it's just such a great coach relationship in this movie, because he's just like a yes man. But then also it's just like, We'll still get shit done. Like he's, he's like, he enforces what Mike needs the team to do because during that night of wrestling practice. It's a very pitiful team. Like they're like they're there because they don't belong anywhere else. It feels like they're like they feel like a bunch of m- misfits just kind of shoved together and became a wrestling team.
0: Yeah, who like told they had to do something and this is where they all wound up.
1: Like <laughs> And Mike kind of like loses it when he tries to do a drill and like screams at them and then just storms out because he can't look at them anymore. And it seems a little dramatic, but then it's also like this is a sports movie. Coaches do do this. At least he didn't hit anybody, you know? Like, he just yelled and stormed off. You know, that's acceptable. <laughs> so that night at dinner, back home, uh, Kyle and Mike are talking, and Kyle's like, yo, could I, like, join wrestling practice next time or something? And he's like, yeah, sure. I do want to apologize. Like, I don't usually yell at them like that or anything. And Kyle's like, no, that was cool. They deserved it. And Mike's just like, what? <laughs>
0: Yeah, it was that it was that classic moment of like, oh, you've earned the sixteen year olds respect. Like <laughs> and then it's like, oh, we're cool now. Okay, for sure.
1: So Mike brings him to the next wrestling practice, and then he has him kind of just like kind of do stuff, and like Kyle just like does a crazy maneuver and takes a guy down in like crazy fast time and and Mike and Vig are just like, What? Seriously, and we learned from Mike's friend Terry, he's who's the best friend he went jogging with earlier in the movie, that Kyle was like a wrestling champ back in Ohio, it was like going to state and had recruiters looking at him for scholarships. Terry is this just happy-go-lucky guy who's just looking for something better to do with his time because he's too busy stalking his ex-wife, I believe is what it was, because he has separation issues. Um, So it's great that he's finding something else to get lost in so he can stop doing the stalkery crazy shit. Like, I understand going through a divorce is hard and you're stuck with a bunch of wedding gifts you don't like using, but like, stalking is not cool.
0: Once again, this movie also qualifies for Men Need to Go to Therapy.
1: So Terry's freaking out and he wants to join to be an assistant coach or something on on the wrestling team and Mike's like you know what sure whatever but like you know you just gotta do what I say and Terry's just psyched because he's just like the wrestling team could be the greatest because these all these guys are like alums from this high school or something like haven't left Jersey so it's just this like weird. I don't know how to explain it. It's just hometown vibes, like grew up here, never left.
0: Yeah, it's the small town of, yeah, you just stay there. That's where everybody stays, and everybody knows everybody. And you can talk to somebody at the grocery store about the 1981 high school Ch- state championship, and everyone's going to know like exactly what you're talking about.
1: And we learned that Mike has a history of being one of the best one of the best players on the wrestling team when he was in high school because he was scrappy or something like that. He he He's too humble about it. Like he's truly, he doesn't want to talk about it. Like he, he doesn't think he was that good or anything, which is very interesting. And like Paul Giamatti like plays it off really well that it's not like a, yeah, please keep egging me on. It's like, no, I don't want to talk about it. I've got too many other things being an adult right now in the present on my mind. I don't like to think about the past kind of humble which is really interesting and so they essentially enroll Kyle into the high school knowing that he's still gonna he's gonna be around for four to six weeks waiting for his mother to get out of rehab to find where her son is so he could join the wrestling team because they have a match like that Saturday or something like it, it just it's quick because like they're they're in season they're in season already and Mike Mike is like really good about consent like throughout this whole movie, which is really, really cool to see that where he's just like, yo, Kyle, would you be down to compete this Saturday? And Kyle's like, yeah, I'm, I'm currently 119, but I could bump up to 125 if that works with you. And they're like, yeah, sure. And they realize like Kyle is like, knows wrestling in and out and knows how to like, once he understands like his team He knows how like the system works and everything and like is able to like help like push their strengths and weaknesses as a team and help the coaches out and wrestling deals with weight classes and that's how competitions work and there's different. I don't understand the whole point scoring system. None of that ever made sense to me, but I understand that there's weight classes for different opponents and everything and that's how you do competitions because, you know, That's just how it works. And sometimes if you don't have someone in a weight class, but the other team does, that's like an automatic win or something for that weight class. It's, I don't know.
0: Yeah, no, uh, no disrespect to any of our listeners who are obsessed with technical wrestling and not just WWE style wrestlings.
1: When the wrestling matches do happen in this movie, I was as into it as I was when I watched the karate matches in Karate Kid. So, you know. Yes, 100%. Yeah, I'm cheering for our protagonist to do well. I'm for it. So, at the first wrestling match, like, Kyle just, like, pins the guy, no problem. But we we also see him tease. Like, he's very funny because he likes to learn his opponent. So, like, they go through, like, two bouts with, like, Kyle not doing well. So, like, he starts on bottom where his opponent starts on top of him and a, you know, more advantageous position. And then we just see Kyle just, like, flip a switch and take this guy down, and people are just like yeah also Kyle asks for certain things which is like really like oddly mature of a kid who knows himself really well because he like when he has like a little like huddle talk with coach before he's on to wrestle like Mike doesn't really know what to say because like he's talking to someone who like has skill and knowledge that arguably outweighs him And he knows that. And so he's like, I don't know what you need. Just like, you know, just stay focused. Like I'm here. If you need me, I'm just right over there. But like you do what you got to do. Let me know what you need. And then Kyle's like, can can you uh, slap me? Just slap me in the face to keep me focused. And Mike's like, what? He's like, like, it's like a wake up thing. It helps me out. Eh." And Mike's like, okay. And like, does a light slap on the face. And then Kyle's like, can you do it harder? And then he like, smacks him. Okay. But I get that. I did something
0: like this in high school. It was for theater because I had to get angry. And looking back, I was like, damn, low key crazy that my teacher agreed to do to this. I would have him like shove me because this man was huge. Like he was probably about three times my entire body, both directions. And I like, it was, it was Hamlet. And I it was right before, like, I was supposed to go in and basically like Threatened Hamlet's life, right? I had to get like pissed, and so I would have him just shove me across the entirety of the like proscenium stage because the show is in the black box space, and like to the point where I would like fall down and and shit. Like it was it, like it was intense, and I'm like, dang, I was really like, I mean, at that time, I think I was like 17, but still, it's like, oh, I mean, I asked for it, but like the fact that an adult actually went through with that is kind of wild and so when I watched that part in this movie I was like you know being an adult now and also having taught high school you uh, know like there's just no way I'd be like are you doing okay do I need to call somebody for you like do you want to talk about this instead like
1: but it's like it's so funny because when when the rest of the team see Kyle do so well and the next kid comes up he's like yo coach Can you slap me too? And it becomes like a tradition with the team now, which is hilarious and like stays through. So then we kind of just have like a little montage of like things in Mike's life kind of get better. And we're like at this like midpoint in the movie. We're like, cool. So where is this movie going to go? Because it has to go somewhere, right? A problem has to happen. Otherwise this movie won't be interesting. Right. But before that, we kind of lead up to like one of the, like biggest competitions one of the biggest matches i would say because it's not the like it's not like regionals or state or anything they're going against like one of the best schools in the district but and like they're fierce because the the joke with the team is that they're they're really good at pinning other other guys down that they're they have a like poster on the ceiling of their gym that says if you can read this you've been pinned at this match There's a kid named Stemmler who's kind of become friends with Kyle. And he's kind of just always been on the bench of the wrestling team. And he's just like, I'm willing to go for it. And so he asks the coaches to put him in. And they're like, are you sure? Uh, We don't know where to fit you. And Kyle's like, oh, I'll just bump here and then you can bump so and so here and then he can slot in where I'm at at one nineteen right now and we'll just make it all work. And the coaches are like, you know what? We can do that. If you're down Stemler, we can do that. And it's like this really like supportive atmosphere that I was very surprised about throughout this movie because you don't see that a lot with like sports movies. It's usually like you go through a lot of rough like degradation of people. And it's just like abuse, like borderline abusive. The
0: joke wasn't him or like he wasn't a joke. Whereas in a lot of these movies, like his character archetype like is a joke.
1: Yeah. And Stemler is very much like me in high school. Like he is lanky and he is a Star Wars nerd and... I did not pick that movie because of that. I forgot that was a thing in this movie.
0: <laughs> it was your subconscious.
1: Yeah, maybe. <laughs> this is also the time where like, Star Wars The Force Unleashed 2 came out, I think, is what it was. Because there's a lot of talking about Darth Vader's secret apprentice, Starkiller, and everything like that. Sorry, nerding out a little bit. But anyway, so Stemler goes up to wrestle in this match. But Kyle goes first kind of thing. I mean, most we see a, like a montage of like all of the guys getting pinned by the this rival high school team. But then Kyle's in there and he takes like one of their best teammates down and that like boosts Stemler's, you know, confidence and everything, which is really cool. And then he goes at it and he's struggling. He's struggling. He doesn't know what he's doing. In the slightest. <laughs> Mike as a pep talk was like, I'm right here on the sidelines. Just look to me if you need help and I'll and I'll tell you what you can do. And then when the match starts, all the coaches, all three of the coaches just don't have words. And Mike's just like, I um I just I hope he I hope he's doing okay and everything. I just hope he gets through this and lives. And they're just like, You got this, Stemler. Yep, keep going. And Stemler's like full on panic mode. He's like flailing and like jumping around
0: no actual advice being given yeah
1: full-on panic and like he's like running out of the circle and it's pissing off the judge the judge is about to like call it because he's like not engaging in uh in the bout with his partner and so then stemler gets pinned almost pinned not actually pinned he gets forced down and there's this move that we've learned earlier in the movie from Kyle when he was on bottom, that how he like exploded out. And it's called the do whatever the fuck you can to survive or something like that, which is the name Kyle gave it because he's like, when I'm in that, there's like no real technique. It's just like I pretend I'm the guy above me is trying to drown the life from my body and so I do whatever the fuck I can to get out of it and take him down, and that's the move. And so Mike gets down on the ground to like be like, you know what? Maybe this will help Stemler because they they looked like they were gonna win this match, but because Stemler has been struggling, the points have been going against them, so they could lose the entire match. And so he gets down to the ground. He's like Stemler you got to do the move. you got to just do whatever the fuck you can to get out of it. The Stemmler's like, what What do you mean? Like, what do I do? He's like, do whatever the fuck you can to get out of it. And the Stemmler just, like, <laughs> rages out and gets out and, like, just survives to run out the clock and they win by, like, two points in the whole wrestling match or something like that. And it was, like, a great win for the team because it's, like, one of the... I think it was, like, the first time they won and they won against, like, the best school in the district, too. So it's, like... It's really good morale boosting for like everybody. So it's really cool to see that. But then things get complicated as Mike and Kyle are going to visit Leo again. They run into Kyle's mom because she's just gotten out of rehab and she did a surprise visit to Leo to figure out where he was. Some added context, throughout this, Kyle's been chatting with Leo a lot and trying to connect with his grandfather because he never knew him till now. He's had a lot of conversations with him about his mom and how there is a rocky relationship is what we learned between Leo and his daughter, Kyle's mom, that they haven't spoken to each other in like over 20 years or something something had a fight happened between them or we don't get any like clarity of what happened, but it just seems like they're both kind of broken human beings, broken people and have made bad choices and gone and it hurt their relationship. And we also learned that like Leo still wants to stay at home and that's what he cares about. And he hasn't been, and he was told by Mike that the court ordered this and Mike's taking care of him. So, we learn that Mike's kind of being a bit deceitful. So, we have this bad side of Mike, and that's like rubs us the wrong way a lot through this movie. So, when Kyle's mom shows up, she scares Kyle, and Kyle immediately storms out. Like, Kyle also does not have a good relationship with his mother right now either, because she hasn't even tried to talk to him in the like over months that she has been gone. And through all this, we we learn that she is mainly there to try to get some sort of inheritance from her father mainly i it's clear that's from the bad relationship that they have with each other that she just wants like she's not financially stable either and so that puts like mike in a really weird position because he's taking advantage of a situation he didn't think would get this complicated cuz he's Arguably taking money from Kyle's mom because she would be the legal guardian of Leo, but because they couldn't get in contact with her or anything, he was was going to be turned to the state. But then Mike was like, I'll take care of it. But he hasn't been true to his word. And that was written down in court. And that becomes very problematic in a bit. So Kyle's mom, who is played by Melanie Linsky, Cindy, the name of the character she gets her own lawyer and we learn that she's kind of been in town for about a week trying to figure out the legalities of her father and everything to try and get guardianship and so this puts mike in a very weird position because they have a meeting with mike because mike has also taken guardianship and there's another lawyer and like mike's really well known in the small town as like a good guy a good lawyer like a trusted guy and so they have this like really awkward meeting and Mike wants to be helpful but it's very impromptu and it's like a lot of like oh I got a lot of shit to figure out because I've kind of dug myself into a hole but he finds a loophole because he has a copy of Leo's will that which has not been fabricated or anything like this is actually Leo's will since he was last fully cognizant to make a will Last Will and Testament, that all of his life savings and everything, everything that is his when he dies goes to funding the local park that he loves and adores so much. And so when Cindy finds that out, she kind of loses it in front of Mike and that like her lawyer is like, "No, no, you cannot do this right now. Like this is not okay cuz it's not okay to like lose your shit and like show like your true true colors." And so Mike's like, "I'm sorry. I I it's clear you guys have more to talk about." And the other lawyer is like, "Yes, thank you, Mike. Uh we'll we'll go now." And so Mike leaves and he thinks he's safe and he he's also grown a relationship with Kyle and so has like the rest of his family. They they really like Kyle and Kyle seems to be doing better because before when he ran away from home, he was kind of like a bit of a punk kid who was smoking a lot, but like when he joined the wrestling team and seemed to have more stability, he quit smoking and he was less like mysterious and closed off. He became a little more open and like part of a, you know, family unit even though it's not his family, but he's kind of joined the family, which has been like really nice because he's been prospering well. Yeah. And it's what he's been craving like this whole time. Right. Through all of this, Kyle's mom has been trying to talk to Kyle, but Kyle's kind of not really having any of it because he knows his mom really well, clearly that she's trying to take advantage of Leo and stuff. And he just wants Leo to be happy and he doesn't want people to take advantage. He's he's tired of his mom taking advantage of people because he's clearly seen that a lot. But he also just wants what's best for Leo because he's kind of been with Leo and probably seen more of Leo's dementia after spending like weeks with Leo. And so we get to like one of the, I, I don't know, it might have been regionals or state. Wrestling matches and it's big because there's a bunch of recruiters looking around and this is a chance for Kyle to like get a scholarship, be on be on track for a scholarship and for college, and you know for a better life for himself. But because he's been very conflicted and everything, his mom surprise shows up to the wrestling match, and that kind of puts him in a funk and he kind of loses it on the mat. That like he starts doing illegal moves and starts like being a menace and he gets disqualified and he storms off and, and Mike knows why it's happened, but he can't do anything about it. And he, he just tries to help Kyle collect himself and just like stay focused and not let like the unresolved chaotic emotions of this broken relationship with his mom take over. But like it doesn't ultimately work. Mike gets bombarded post-match by Kyle's mom, and he he kind of just tells her off of just like, you've jeopardized your son's possible future. Like, how, how could you not care about him? Like, what do you really want? And she's like playing this game of like, no, I just wanted to see my son and support him. But then she's like, I want the money you're getting being his guardianship. And Mike's like, you know what? I'm I'm tired of seeing this kid who has so much potential be destroyed so easily by just your presence that you know what? I will, I will send you the check if you leave Kyle with us and I'll even take care of Leo. You're like, you don't even have to take care of Leo. I will take care of him. And she's like, You're trying to bribe me. And I'm like, I'm just trying to do what's best for Kyle, because that's all that matters. And she thinks about it and then storms off and doesn't take it. She is too much in her own bad ego selfishness that she thinks she knows what's best for everyone in her life kind of thing it's it's very human and that that like being broken thinking you know how to fix yourself and your relationships around you when you keep forgetting that like these are other people you've hurt they have their own opinions feelings and emotions they they're on their own road then you like you can't just pop in and out and think everything's fine after being destructive in a relationship.
0: It was a very like realistic character choice rather than a narrative like story arc character choice.
1: Cindy's lawyer finds the court transcript that says that Mike was going to help Leo stay in his home but he hasn't been committing to that promise that he made in court and has been taking advantage of Leo. And so Cindy uses that and shows it to Kyle to kind of just wedge, just wedge between the relationship Kyle and Mike have to try and kind of win her son back. But that just makes things worse. And we get this really, it was a rough confrontation to see because Kyle first off like disappears from home. He kind of just like disappears again. And He hasn't been doing this for a while since he joined the wrestling team and everything. And so Mike and the family are kind of like, where's Kyle? And they kind of go looking for him. And it turns out he went to go visit his mom in a motel room. His mom shows him the court transcript and Kyle kind of feels like everyone's against him and taking advantage of people he cares about in him. And he kind of goes down this spiral to the point like he almost like, There's like a bad... It's a really rough confrontation with his mom that he like kind of like shoves her on the bed and kind of like wrestles her to the bed. And it's very hard to watch, but like no like real harm happened. It was just very scary to see like this chaotic 16-year-old lose control, Um, especially against his own mother that clearly they have a very, very, very terrible relationship. Um, And then he storms out and then we he breaks Leo out of his uh, elderly care facility and takes him home. So Mike gets a call that like Leo's missing and we cut to everyone, including Terry there with them the whole time, yelling at the staff and all these old people watching of like, how can you lose an old man? Did you just like walk on out of here without any supervision? And it's just like stereotypical, just like, panic and not knowing what to do and so mike then realizes oh he probably went home and so they go home and they see that he's there and then they see kyle's there making dinner mike and kyle then have a fight and this is where we like see mike mike's lies kind of all come out and everyone's seeing all the lies mike has been having about taking care of leo and and just the situation of things and how like Manipulative Mike has kind of been in taking advantage of Leo in this situation and causing problems to the point like Kyle and Mike have a wrestle in the front yard and then Mike takes Leo back and he's kind of been kicked out of the house because his wife is also like upset with him played by the fantastic Amy Ryan who's just killing it in this movie again like we saw her in Worth and now we're seeing her in this and it's just... She's killing it. And so Mike stays over with Leo back at the elderly care facility. And he wakes up the next morning being like, I need to fix things. Like, this wasn't okay. Like, I knew it wasn't okay, but yet I still did it. But I, I gotta like actually fix things, knowing that I think he, I think he also had the forefront knowledge that like this isn't, gonna, this isn't an apology that's going to fix everything. It's, it's a stepping block to try to rebuild. Relationships again. And I think it's like it's really cool to see that portrayed by Paul Giamatti in this character because it doesn't feel like, yes, it's like a plot device for this movie and everything, and it's gotta happen quickly because it's like this 90-minute movie or whatever, but like it doesn't feel like it's it doesn't feel cliched and like cookie cutter. Like you've you've been following this character and you've understood this character. And like, you know, this character is going to make that choice eventually. It's just how far he was going to get pushed into making the bad choice that he made until he came to reconciliation to fix it. So Mike kind of makes sure Leo can actually live in his house. He's going to support Leo in living in his house and take him out of the elderly care facility. He then runs into Kyle because um, Kyle slips back into the house through a window because he's been staying in the basement to collect all his things. And he has a conversation and Mike's just up front being like, I'm making sure Leo stays at home. He's not going to stay in that facility anymore. I'm going to take care of things. And Kyle's like, I hope, you know, this, this isn't an apology. Like it's not going to, this, this doesn't work for me. It's not going to fix everything. And Mike's like, Oh, I know that I fully am aware of that. Like I have hurt you. I know that I am just letting you know what I'm doing right now. And it's, up to you what you do and i fully respect that i just care about you because kyle kind of gets overwhelmed of like the honesty from adults because he's not used to that and he's just like i need to be alone just can you can you leave me alone so they go up to leave and then amy ryan's character is just like one last thing we love you and it's just like this thing of like he probably hasn't heard that ever in his life ever yeah yeah So then we kind of we get back to court because, of course, they're going to go to court about this with this new findings against Mike. And that's kind of fucked up his reputation a little bit as an attorney. And that's like not good for him. But then Cindy is there and she's like, is that deal still up for grabs? And Mike's like, does that mean Kyle stays with us? And she's like, it seems like he has a better he's in a better place here. And so they kind of make the deal So they don't go to court or anything. And then we kind of just cut to some time later, very unknown how much time later, but life is very different. Mike is very busy. He's still an, an, an attorney. I assume he still coaches the wrestling team, but they're out of season now. Kyle's staying with them and he's kind of become a member of the family, which is really refreshing. But Mike is still like very busy as ever because he's rushing home. He's late because he had to stay in the office late, but he needs to go check on Leo. He's like, I'm going to have dinner with Leo. Don't worry about me. And then we see him go to his next job because now he's a bartender at a bar to try and just make ends meet right now. And everything because, you know, he's he doesn't get that fifteen hundred dollars anymore from taking care of Leo. He sends that off to Cindy because of the deal they made to take care of Kyle. And it's just kind of this. It ends very quickly. It wraps everything up in a nice bow, more or less. Terry's there at the bar and he's just like checking in with Mike. I'm like, how you doing? You look a little frazzled. And Mike's like, I'm, you know, I'm busy, but like I'm doing pretty good. And, like, that's the first time we've seen Mike say that about himself. Like, he he feels okay. Even though he's arguably much busier and probably has more stressors than he does at the beginning of the movie, he seems in a better place as a human. But, yeah, so that's that's win-win. Really solid film. I liked it a lot. It was just great to see, like, a great cast being real characters with a lot of depth, except for maybe Vig. Maybe Vig didn't have a lot of depth portrayed by Jeffrey Tambor. He was just this like... Vig was our archetype. But he's very closed off human. He seemed very shy. So, you know, I don't don't fault that at all. Yeah, if, that, if that's it, we can hop to your movie. All right. So, for New Beginnings,
0: uh, I picked... Um, the film Thelma and Louise from 1991, directed by the now very famous uh, Ridley Scott. And it was written by Callie Curry, I believe I'm saying that correctly, which was actually a debut script. So it is crazy how popular this movie got so quickly, and also how it has kind of integrated its way into a lot of like popular culture references and things like that throughout the years and maybe like I don't know I feel like our generation maybe doesn't really know the Thelma and Louise reference a whole lot but like definitely like our parents generation like if you were to say like Thelma and Louise even if they haven't seen the movie they know who you're talking about and like what you mean by that reference which i will talk about
1: it is it's is definitely one of those movies cuz i i watched this in a a film class in college and i was genuinely surprised about how many people of my peers in that class had no idea what this movie was and like i i know i saw it pretty young cuz my mom loved this movie cuz she's of that generation when this movie came out so like I, I understand the cultural references and everything, but like I don't like fully understand the movie a lot. Knowing it I watched it as a kid, but like had more context in a film class. But it was, I was still very stunned by like people not knowing like the friendship relationship and like that archit the what what's now like that archetype that's kind of been created between Thelma and Louise. Yeah. It's fascinating.
0: The movie was considered like so important that in 2016 it actually was preserved in the National Film registry at uh, by the Library of Congress and the quote is that it was found culturally historically or aesthetically significant um, and I think that culturally and aesthetically significant definitely apply um, because this is it's a it's a drama movie but there's like it's your classic like road adventure movie um, but there's also some like, romance aspects, but it is it is also two female leads, which is really cool. And we don't really have anything like this. Um so our two main characters are uh Louise Sawyer, played by Susan Sarandon. Shout out childhood crush, uh, and um Thelma Dickinson, um, who is played by Gina Davis. And right off the bat, we've got like two Just like classic best friends, but they have very distinct personality differences. Louise is a lot like she's a lot sharper, witty. She's got some like edge to her. She's very clearly the one who like makes the impulsive decisions. Um, And then we have Thelma, um, who is... In the beginning of the film, a lot more kind of reserved, feels like she needs to ask her husband permission for everything, you know, is happy to go along with whatever the plan is, but isn't going to make the plan herself. And so our, our plot here starts off with, they have planned, the two of them, a weekend vacation. They're going to go out to this like fishing cabin and they want to essentially, which is why I picked it for New Beginnings, like they think that their lives are like, eh, and they want to just like take a break from them for a weekend. And all of this takes place in Arkansas. So we also have some cultural dynamics in that regard, in that like Thelma is a housewife, and her husband, Daryl, is a absolute asshole and very like very disrespectful, truly does not care about her in the slightest, but also like very controlling and so uh we kind of open with Thelma or, or sorry uh Louise working at a diner, so she's a a waitress, and she calls. Thelma would be like, Are you ready for the trip? Blah blah blah. And Thelma is immediately like, Yeah, I just haven't asked Daryl yet. And Louise is like, Is he your husband or is he your father? Like, come on, like, let's let's go. Like, whatever. Which again sets very clear characters uh for us kind of like moving into the into the movie.
1: Which is very interesting because we also see not too long after this, that like well, we we see from Thelma's life that like A little bit chaotic as well like things like her house is like kind of messy and crazy you know like she seems like she's trying to keep up with like all the dishes and everything but it's just a little chaotic but then like we think Louise is also living like a chaotic life because she's a waitress and she's dealing with like dozens of people during the breakfast rush and everything. But then when we get to like her place, it's spotless and super tidy. Everything's so neat. We, yeah, it's so we get like this getting ready
0: montage, like for their road trip where we see all these things. Yeah. It's, it's their physical lives are the opposite of their like personalities, which was a super cool, like directorial choice. And one of the things that we also see in this montage is Thelma, our, our sweet little Thelma packs a handgun up and just like drops it into this like plastic bag and like throws it into her suitcase in the same regard that she just like dumps out a drawer of like underwear and socks. Doesn't even like pack them, literally takes the drawer out and flips the drawer upside down onto the suitcase. Um, whereas like Louisa's stuff is folded and like put into bags and put into the suitcase. like really really interesting but we also and but we get these contradictions throughout the whole film like like things that are constantly contradicting themselves because even before the montage Louise is serving these two kind of younger girls at the diner and they're smoking cigarettes and she's like you shouldn't smoke it it kills your sex drive and then immediately goes back to the kitchen and lights a cigarette and starts smoking it we we kind of have these like intentional contradictions of things throughout the whole film right after our kind of like well right, uh, amidst the montage I'll say um, we meet Daryl as a character Thelma's husband and he just doesn't listen to anything he is horrible patronizes her and then like literally leaves in a sports car and in doing so is just like being really really trying to like talk down to and humiliate even the workers that are like outside at the house. Louise picks up Thelma and we find out that Like she didn't actually ask Daryl for permission ever, so this is like a big, like ooh, like taboo kind of thing. Louise is obviously like hell yeah, let's go. Um, but you can tell that that was kind of like a big move for Thelma to not ask, and they take a Polaroid, which is a very um, I don't know, it's an image that's used a lot when talking about this movie and stuff. Is the picture of them like taking a selfie with their Polaroid? It's it like I said, kind of classic like road trip. We get some like conversations that happen on the on the road but our first kind of like big plot point is very soon into the movie it's only about 10 minutes in and Thelma and Louise stop off at this uh like roadside bar basically to get a bite to eat have some fun get a drink whatever
1: let's be clear it's a roadhouse because
0: there's line dancing and a live band it's a, okay sorry sorry Correct. My bad. My bad.
1: I, I only had to defend it because of my time in Tennessee. That's a very specific place. Ah, uh,
0: I see. Okay, this is the southern, uh, the southern cultural thing. Great. Got it. Specifically, a roadhouse is where they stop off at. They drink a little, they're having some fun, and then this guy approaches the table, and his name is Harlan. And again, contradictory to what you would think, Thelma who is married is actually the one who kind of like entertains him whereas Louise is very much like no absolutely not like i i don't want to do this like i'm you know nervous whatever Harlan just kind of like zeroes in on Thelma and's like everybody let's drink so they're drinking they're dancing they're line dancing and Thelma is dancing with Harlan specifically Thelma starts to feel like not very well. And Louise already wanted to leave because um, she like went back to the table at some point while Thelma and Harlan were still dancing. Harlan takes Thelma outside and we get a really difficult scene to watch where Thelma is like clearly way too drunk, is sick. And Harlan starts making advances, which... Thelma is very clearly not accepting and actively saying no to. And it goes from like a he's trying to like convince her or like persuade her sort of situation to a full on attempted rape. Like he hits her and bends her over the car. And like it, it, I was actually surprised with how much they showed of this scene. I feel like a lot of the I, I, and also i would love to just put my two cents out there is i don't think that sexual assault scenes are ever necessary in movies um just in general that's my personal opinion but when we do get them in modern cinema it's the shots are always i feel like very similar unless you're watching something that is intentionally supposed to be like very jarring but this was like we saw a lot more the shots weren't waist above the shots very much were like waist below and right before anything could officially happen um louise finds Thelma and harlan and aims a loaded the loaded pistol at harlan's neck and tells him like you know back off or i will it is something crazy which was awesome but it was like or i'll explode your head all over this pretty little car or something because it's worth noting that Thelma and Louise are riding in a 1966 Ford Thunderbird in a like light blue. So it is a really slick looking convertible. Harlan, he kind of like backs off whatever they go. Thelma and Louise like go to walk away and Harlan makes a comment about how he should have just like raped her like he should have just gone through with it or whatever louise without any hesitation shoots him square in the chest immediately killing him that again this all happens like like i think it's like 19 minutes is when the gun fires and like the movie is approximately two hours long so we we really kind of set the tone of like oh god this what is supposed to be a freeing trip has now turned into something a lot more than that
1: and I, and i think it like it shocks you and i think it was supposed to shock audiences back in 1991 when this movie came out cuz like even seeing such a visceral rape attempt sequence is shocking Ridley Scott's not foreign to this type of thing cuz we saw a similar thing in blade runner ourselves in this podcast i think he he was smart enough in choices of shots for this to make it knowing that more audiences were going to see this movie because of just the cast itself as well as the marketing you can pull off with this movie he he knew i guarantee the whole team themselves wanted to shock the audience to quickly be on board with these characters and like throughout this movie there's a lot of criticism and commentary about the current roles of women in society at the time it clearly didn't like start the conversation but i it definitely no doubt stirred the conversation further about the problems that women face in society on the norm of men taking advantage of them and to see that commercially in such a large film like helps helps have that conversation and shine light on that problem in society that is still a huge problem in our society which is so sad and frustrating and aggravating
0: to say the least so after they the, after Harlan is shot and literally dies on the spot they hop in the car and they they escape and we get a really interesting conversation between Thelma and Louise where Louise is actually blaming victim blaming Thelma for like kind of putting herself into that that situation saying like we can't go to the police they're never going to believe us like who's going to believe he tried to rape you when you were drinking and dancing with him and flirting with him all night like blah 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 blah. ultimately like louise winds up throwing up because she also just fully shot and killed somebody and we have a really cool like auditory moment here of just like trucks and noise and like really feeling like like the soundscape became incredibly overwhelming and so they decide like, let's, let's just pause. Let's come up with a plan. Like, let's get some coffee. Like, let's figure this out. They, they're thinking about what they can possibly do. And ultimately they hatch this plan, Thelma and Louise, that they are going to flee to Mexico, but Louise has a stipulation, which is that they are not going to drive through Texas. We get informed that like something happened a lot of years ago there to her. But we we don't actually know what that thing is. She basically like Louise refuses to say. And so then we get a moment of Detective Hal with this like waitress kind of interviewing because obviously there's been a murder. And the waitress actually makes a statement about how Harlan deserved it. And the waitress is there defending Thelma and Louise. So I thought that was a cool thing to put in in that like interviewed moment. So that's kind of in between Thelma and Louise figuring out like where they're going and what they want to do. And they also realize they have no money. Like Louise looks and she's like, I've got like <laughs> 60 bucks or something like that. And they're like, oh God, we're we're screwed. They they're not ready to go to jail. And they're at this motel. Basically, Louise calls her boyfriend, Jimmy, who we find out Jimmy is a traveling musician who's just kind of been touring for everywhere and a lot of time. And she calls him like for money. And there's this whole conversation of like, do you love me? Which is very kind of manipulative, but like, you know, they're they're doing what they need to do in those moments and the money that she wants from him isn't even his it's she's asking him to like wire her life savings to her then because this this movie works really well in like acts uh there are like very clear acts like we have our beginning which is like they're preparing to leave then we get kind of they're like they've left and also our you know our inciting incident and then figuring out kind of what to do is all kind of act one, I would say. And then like the next one that we get is them trying to to get this money. So then we, we get Hal again and his boss is telling him that this is now like an interstate issue, which means that the FBI has to be involved. And so basically that he can't just handle it alone because it's no longer just an Arkansas problem. So they are heading to Oklahoma to pick up the money from Jimmy. And upon arriving to Oklahoma, Jimmy is actually there. So it's not just the money, but Jimmy himself has showed up. She gets the money um, and he gets them motel rooms. Something I forgot to mention that happened in between this is we get a young Brad Pitt uh, as a character named JD, who is a hitchhiker. And again, we get Thelma, who wants to pick up JD. And we get Louise, who is like, no, we shouldn't do that. And so they pass him by the first time, but then he pops up again, and Thelma finally convinces Louise to like let him join. So they do wind up picking JD. So when they get to the motel JD kind of like briefly departs, but like not really, because we'll find out in a second as I talk about it. So Jimmy and Louise go to like a room and they spend the night together. They, you know, have some fun. Simultaneously, JD has knocked on Thelma's door. Thelma and JD wind up uh sleeping together. That was like I don't know why, but I wasn't expecting that in like the first time when I watched the film. I think I, I think it was probably also because I watched it younger. And so I wasn't picking up on a lot of the things that, you know, I should have picked up on. JD also reveals that he is running from the police as well uh, because he is skipped parole for an armed robbery and like there's a whole moment of like you know giving some information to Thelma about what an armed robbery looks like which winds up being relevant meanwhile through this whole thing We poor Hal is just dealing with trying to like interview people and figure out like where these girls are. He, uh, so like Hal goes to Louise's place to like investigate and he goes to the diner and he also interviews Daryl, who is so just does not care and he just talks about like himself the whole time. It was so. Oh my god! Just a narcissist, an absolute narcissist. Like it's after that that interview with Hal that we get a scene with JD talking to Thelma, saying your husband sounds like a real asshole, and like that was very well done. Like that was very funny. Hal now finds out though that. Thelma has a gun and and that there is this gun that the girls have and then it's pieced together. Okay, this is the gun that was used to shoot Harlan. Um, So they are armed and technically low-key, like dangerous. Before Louise and Thelma like split to their individual rooms, one of the things Louise says to Thelma is guard the money. So when Jimmy and JD are with Louise and Thelma, respectively, Jimmy is like, also not a good guy. Jimmy is also makes it very clear that he's jealous and he gets violent. And then he like chills out and immediately proposes to Louise, which was crazy behavior. She does deny the proposal, but they still like wound up sleeping together because then like in the morning they kiss goodbye. Louise is there waiting at at breakfast for Thelma and Thelma gets there and there's a conversation about how she finally got laid properly, which was, uh, (laughs) which was just uh, good. Just good. Good for her. And because Daryl sucks and I hate Daryl so much, which is also, I think says a lot that like I'm watching this movie and I'm like, I'm rooting for the women who killed somebody and I actively want to see the asshole husband fail miserably. Hey,
1: Harlan was Evil dude, okay? Deserved it, right?
0: Yes, he was. He he, I mean, uh, I my personal opinions aside, so we find out that Thelma left the money in the room, and there is a moment of, oh my god, and they run back to the motel room and the money's gone. JD is gone. Louise is having a breakdown. That's literally her entire life savings. And this also kind of marks the end of. Thelma's innocence. Thelma is no longer this, you know, sweet demure. She's, she now has kind of stepped into a new version of herself. Louise in being so distraught, like Thelma feels super guilty and decides, you know what? I'm going to take over. I'm going to take charge of everything. And so, she decides that she's going to drive. She robs a convenience store to try to make it up to Louise and to get Louise's savings back and She does so using tactics that she learned from j d who is running from parole for armed robbery and Thelma is successful. it just it happens and so now we've gone from a murder to a armed robbery all within. 40 minutes of, of of each other after crossing state lines. So we're kind of seeing this like spiral of these two women from what started as something that was supposed to be a fun like getaway trip.
1: We also see a lot of like their friendship as well through this. We like, we start seeing how they are as friends with each other. Like these, clearly they've been friends for a while. And so there's just like funny isms that happen between the two of them because you know when you have a good friend that you've had for a long time you kind of like have your own language with each other about things and it's like also so relatable to like you and your own friends of like how you like talk and joke around with them like i i remember like they ran into jd Brad Pitt's character like really early in the movie and louise dismissed him and then, like, later after, like, a bunch of road montage driving scenes interjected with some plot, they come across him again sitting, like, next to an abandoned housing development area. Thelma is just, like, goes, like, full dog, puppy dog of just, like, please and, like, whimpers and everything. And Louise is, like, okay, fine. And it's just, like, so relatable and it's just amazing to see this, like, friendship that is still st- so strong, even though, like, they don't know what to do now. And they've chosen to, like, go to Mexico.
0: Yep. So when Thelma, like, robs the store, then it's like, all right, drive us to Mexico. Like, here we go. Then we get um a moment of Hal and Daryl watching the footage of Thelma robbing the store. And everybody is literally, like, mouth open shocked. Like, what what the actual hell, like, this is crazy. Meanwhile, Thelma's, like, bragging about it. She's, like, super proud of her robbery. But there's, like, a weird dynamic there as well of, like, they're kind of, like, Thelma and Louise are kind of, like, accepting the situation that they're in. But also there's very, it's very clear of, like, there's a comment about, like, oh, you found your calling, but also, like, you're disturbed. Um, And so it's, like, they're kind of wrestling with this, like I don't know path that they're that they're going down, and then it gets worse if you could believe it or not, you know, as I mentioned the 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 FBI everybody has now seen this tape, so the FBI is kind of like closing in they're they're able to start figuring out like who these girls are, where they're potentially headed, and part of that is because there's a witness at the bar that was able to identify the car, which is the 1966 Ford Thunderbird convertible, which is so sexy and beautiful. They they also uh, like never showed up to the cabin. So the guy who's like loaning the fishing cabin is like, where are these women? Where did they go? They're not here. Hal starts further leading the investigation, even though the FBI is so heavily involved. And so we find out JD got picked up. They're interrogating JD. And... Jimmy. So they also have Jimmy and they're investigating Jimmy. On top of that, they also put like wiretaps on the phone line to Daryl's house. And what is really interesting to me is that how really is sympathetic towards Thelma and Louise, like how very clearly does not want these like women to get in trouble and is really trying to find like anything and everything to not place blame on them it is revealed that what happened to Louise in Texas and why she wanted to avoid Texas is that she was raped in Texas and so when Hal realizes that he understands why they didn't report like when they killed Harlan and also even tries to pin the robbery like the the robbery that Thelma did like on JD and it, and basically like says that it's JD's fault because otherwise like if they hadn't come across JD they would have never like tried to rob a, a store or anything and while Hal is trying to do this and like put all of this together then Thelma calls Daryl and we have to remember that Daryl's wire is now tapped he basically says like yeah I know everything then Louise calls and asks, for the police
1: well, so so the, how that scene worked was funny because it was Louise is like you you need to call Daryl, and Thelma doesn't want to. Thelma's just like, "No, no, I don't want to, and Louise is like, we just need to know like what people think of us right now. Like you stay on the phone until you realize that, like Daryl knows something's up like that police are there like once you like have any inkling. And so when Thelma calls him, she calls him and she just goes, hello. And then Daryl's like, hey. And then she immediately hangs up. And it's just like beautiful wife intuition of how terrible this man is. (laughs) Yeah, the fact that he
0: was like, had any sort of joy in his voice to, to speak to her. She said. Oh, God. Only Gina Davis could pull that off so well. Like, bravo. So good. So then Louise and Hal wind up talking on the phone. And he is the most, like, gentle, sympathetic guy, like, talking to her. And they have, like, a few brief conversations. But he is unsuccessful every single time in getting them to, like, turn themselves in or surrender or anything, despite despite how caring he really is about their situation. Now we've kind of gotten this flip of like, what was in this dynamic of like it appearing, you know, because every every friendship has a, has a dynamic and there's always somebody who's maybe like a little bit more in charge, quote unquote. And like, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but like at the beginning of the film, it was clear that like Louise was the one, as I said, who like made the decisions. And now we've kind of gotten this flip of, Louise is done. And Thelma's the one who's starting to kind of call certain shots and make certain calls and things. And there's a conversation between Thelma and Louise that Thelma says, like, if you want to go home, like I understand. And she's like, You have Jimmy. And like, that's amazing. But Daryl sucks, and I'm not going back to Daryl is basically like what the conversation is. Louise basically just says, we're in this thing together and we're going to keep going together. And they get back on the road. We have the moment between Thelma and Louise where Thelma tries to bring up asking Louise if the incident that happened with Harlan is what happened to her in Texas. The response is just explosive from Louise and basically super angry and tells Thelma to, to never bring it up ever again. So even though we as the audience know And now because of that reaction, Thelma knows, but Louisa's never actually like said it out loud. And then it gets worse because they're pulled over in another state because they're now in New Mexico. A state trooper pulls him over for speeding. The reaction is obviously, oh, my God, we're going to jail. He's going to know that we're wanted for murder and armed robbery in two different states And so what do they decide to do? Well, Thelma pulls out the gun and points it at this state trooper while Louise takes his gun and all of his like ammunition and everything. And they lock him in the trunk of his own police car. And again, it was like, you're rooting for them the whole time, but they keep making horrible, horrible choices. Once they kind of like put him in the the trunk, Thelma makes a weird comment about how she's like, she's got a knack for this kind of stuff. And again, it just shows us like how much further Thelma has slipped into this path of like things were so bad in her previous like life that this is what she has now opted into. So when I say new beginnings, this is not a good new beginning by any means there is a truck driver uh, that decides to start making a bunch of like sexist remarks towards Thelma and Louise. They have like a conversation to themselves about how like, oh, they they think we like it, whatever. The What winds up being the solution that they decide on is they shoot the gun at the tank of the big rig truck and they blow it up and the truck explodes Um, and they have now left this sexist truck driver stranded in the middle of nowhere pretty much so it's like that happens amidst the police talking to Jimmy the police talking to JD the wiretaps on the phone like how trying to be like it's not these women's fault and then they fully are just open range firing a gun at the gas tank of a truck to explode it and the reason they do it is because they tell him to apologize for his sexist comments and he doesn't. What I think is really interesting about this movie as well is that like all of the things that they choose to do in the moment are all due to shitty things about men. And so there is absolutely a narrative here of like what has the patriarchy driven women to literally because it's a road trip movie uh, and also metaphorically with all all of these things. And that's why I think Hal is such a refreshing character as because he he blames JD for that robbery, right? And it, and as the audience were like, you are a hundred percent correct. If they had not met JD and he had told Thelma about like armed robbery tips and things, like she would not have robbed the convenience store. And if he had JD hadn't sucked and stolen the money, they would have had no reason to even be in a situation where they would have considered robbing a convenience store.
1: Yeah, this movie does a lot of commentary about about the patriarchy. Honestly, like that's what this movie is all about. Focusing on Hal a little bit more. It's interesting with his character because like he seems to be the only decent man, but there are lots of moments throughout this movie. As well, though, that like he puts on a face to like appease the other men around him because there's like joking with like some of the FBI agents or other state police officers and stuff like that about how crazy women can be sometimes in front of Daryl or whatever because he's just like got to keep up this image about women be crazy bullshit and stuff like that. But like he. Like, he means well, but he will still put on a face around other men. And that's, like, also a commentary of it in and of itself about the men and their relationships with each other and what they do with one another and how they talk about women with each other.
0: Yes. And I think that as well, like, definitely... I think it would be, and I, I'm not going to speak for you personally, but I will speak for you know men kind of generally. Is that that is a very real thing that I think a lot of us who have learned better have tried to you know not even tried to. I think a lot of us successfully, also a lot of us haven't and don't care because men suck. Uh, but like that is something that happens is like when you're in a group and there's you know the the general majority mentality is like being this kind of like vulgar, whatever. It's like, it's something that you fall into and you play along and you don't say anything that's like, you, you like, like speaking for myself, like I've been in a fraternity, right. You can imagine the sorts of conversations that happen amongst like fraternity brothers. And it's a really weird situation to be in when you're like, I don't agree with the things that you're saying, but I'm also not going to actively dispute the things that you're saying. And I think there's a lot of growth going from that to like, hey, you're an asshole. And also like, what the fuck are you talking about right now? And like, we're kind of seeing like how being in the very, like trying to play both sides. But what I think is interesting in this film is that he's trying to play both sides for the benefit of Thelma and Louise, because if he gets the FBI and the other agents like against him in any way, he's the only one who's actually rooting for them, and so they're gonna not respect him anymore, and therefore they have zero chance, and they already have like a five percent chance. So it's yeah,
1: yeah, and that and that's even a commentary of itself that like he is the only one who is giving them any benefit of the doubt and choosing to try to understand them because everyone is making preconceived notions and ideas of why they're doing the things they do like that's kind of like why they were shocked watching Thelma rob a grocery store because they didn't think that was possible for her to do and it's also brilliant when like they lock that that state trooper in the back of his own cop car because it's like he started out as this like very masculine authority figure who was trying to like show off and then he was quickly emasculated in that moment when he when he never thought a gun by a woman could threaten him so much and like he is like pissing in his boots scared for his life talking about how he has a wife and children at home and he's terrified all they do is just lock him in this trunk and shoot his police radio and his regular stereo because uh, Louise didn't realize what Selma was asking when she said to shoot the radio. <laughs> yeah, it's there's so oh, it's so
0: it's so beautifully. It's so beautifully done. So after the truck uh, explosion, they just start driving again. And they're it's a lot of I want to say like it's a lot of nothing, but also I feel like it's it's important. They are officially being just cornered in by the FBI, by helicopters, by state patrol, all of it. They're, they kind of realize it's a, it's a weird dynamic. It's like they realize that they're done for, but they're also not necessarily outwardly acknowledging that they're done for so it's it's only stuff that we're kind of seeing in their acting and uh at one point like Louise even turns to Thelma and is like so what do you think about the getaway weekend so far or like something like that and there's kind of just this like this like laugh and this understanding of like wow this is this is so much more than we thought then there's a a super like we don't we're not on them anymore we just get this stoned bike rider he's he's like smoking and then a police helicopter close in closes in uh police cars are chasing them and they start to go off-road they like go under this bridge and everything gets really quiet they realize it's kind of like the first chance to actually like talk and express themselves and like they're they're away from everything they are a hundred yards from the edge of the Grand Canyon and Thelma just has this look and oh, Gina Davis kills me. Oh, it was so good. And before we can really see what happens with them, we get Hal who lands and he is like, they are surrounded. He's like, please surrender. And Louise is like, I don't want to give up. And Thelma says, let's keep going. And Louise is like, are you like, sure? And Thelma's like, I'm positive. They kiss, which is something that I want to discuss maybe because I don't know what lens I need to be looking at that kiss with. But Thelma and Louise kiss and then they hold hands and Louise puts her foot to the gas and they floor it. And they start driving off the edge and how literally is running after them obviously there's no stopping them at this point and our last shot of the movie is the car like in the air from this jump like over the grand canyon and obviously the insinuation is that they drove off the cliff to their deaths rather than deal with the repercussions of any of the things that they that they did
1: and throughout this whole movie it's it's beautifully scored by Hans Zimmer which is at a time when Hans Zimmer didn't do just a bunch of blahs as his scoring <laughs> it's a actually him experimenting with synthesizers age of him as a composer so it's really interesting utilizing that so it has very it's very Ridley Scott score esque with a bunch of synthesizers but then it's like this Got this like slide country guitar playing throughout with the score, and it's just this beautiful juxtaposition of scoring. It stays very country. We hear a lot of that guitar and tonality, but then as we get later in the movie, the synths kind of like kind of take more of just opportunity of taking over the the silence that is between the notes from the guitar, and we we see that. Things have changed. Like, these women have changed throughout this movie, and the score reflects that. They feel stronger and more confident, and the synthesizers kind of convey that musically as well, to me, at least. I really
0: adore this film for so for so many reasons. The score is one of them, because the score is a character of the movie, in my opinion, in and of itself some interesting well i did say i wanted to talk about the kiss because i i didn't know what i didn't know what lens to like watch that through because i feel like the the entire point of this movie is to actively combat like the sexualization of women and like the way that that women are treated and viewed and so to view the kiss as Romantic, I feel like, is not what we're supposed to do. But at the same time, they made a moment out of it. It didn't feel like just like two friends kissing on the lips right before they drive off a cliff to their death. There felt like there was more behind it. And so I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know how, I don't want to look at it the wrong way because I feel like, because I feel like depending on how you look at it, it does change it does change kind of like the vibe of the movie it's like i don't want that one thing at the end to be like oh did i miss something throughout the whole film or be like you literally just missed the whole point of the film by viewing it in that one way you know what i mean so what did what what did you
1: feel about that so so this watch for me i i focused more on less about it Because this movie's known by, like, critics and reviewers and stuff historically. Like, even when with its, like, 20th anniversary release, it had a lot more conversations had about it being a feminist film. But then, like, there's always been a lot of arguments and discussion about what kind of feminist film it is. Because some critics who are, like, men and don't understand feminism think it's misogynistic and such like that when it's like not that even remotely honestly in my opinion but then there's a lot of discussion about how it's it was very neo-feminist of its time which is it's it's hard to understand especially in a 2024 now lens looking at this movie because we're in a whole different wave of you know, identity and rights for for all identities and everything. So it's this movie still does feel timeless for America within it of itself, right? And and so my lens this time was just watching these these two best friends like finding themselves more so and realizing the the friendship they have with each other. So like the kiss to me swings between like realizing they're soulmates, but not like in a romantic soulmate sense, but like in a best friends for life and we intimately understand each other. That's the vibe that I got.
0: Yeah. And then literally for life and then choosing when that life ends together as a unit,
1: which is, which is a huge thing. Like that is like, that is a commitment you have with a soulmate. Right. And like, sometimes a soulmate is your romantic partner as well like they can be one of the same and then sometimes you can have a different soulmate who is not a romantic partner like like that is a thing that's possible to me at least these are opinions being had because things are very subjective when we get to emotions and this kind of talk especially when we get to a movie that very much focuses on this cool okay yeah good
0: okay i think i just needed to like brain toss that with somebody some very uh some very brief fun facts. Originally, Michelle Pfeiffer and Jodie Foster were the two who were cast and they accepted the roles for the film, but then pre-production took too long and they both dropped out. And that was actually with Jodie Foster going to Silence of the Lambs instead. And then Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn were offered the leads, which is wild wild. And then Streep dropped out. Han was not considered right for the part. So even though they were offered, they were like, never mind. Then Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon were chosen. Gina Davis, I found out, like, had been wanting that role for like a-, a year. Like she had been like gunning for it. So I cannot possibly imagine what this movie would have looked like with anybody else. Other than Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon. Like, I think that they were perfect, absolutely perfect. They also did have to take driving and shooting lessons, uh, which I think is incredibly funny. I just think that it's cool that they're, I mean, four huge names considered before we landed on another two huge names uh to to do this movie
1: like this movie wanted to be done like if you got ridley scott signed onto this movie in the 90s like it's gonna be a big movie like everyone wants to work with ridley scott at this point because like he's had hits in the theaters since he's been making millions of dollars so like you you can definitely see it the other thing that i i noticed uh, i i was playing in my head a lot on this watch of the movie was figuring out if Ridley Scott was the right person to direct this movie because this is still ultimately a man directing this movie which I'm sure is a criticism that has come up a lot as
0: well yeah when you have a movie that's so iconic for its neo-feminism of the time and yet it was still directed by a man
1: yeah, it was I mean, it was definitely just like an interesting game I was playing in my head because I was, I was also thinking back to like a lot of his other movies. Like, I mean, he did Alien and that's got Sigourney Weaver in the, in the lead role being a badass as Ripley. So like he he's not foreign to having female leads and like making them strong female leads. And that's probably why he was picked or chose to do this film, because he was respected for doing that
0: i would also say like i imagine and i would love to deep dive more than you know what are we try to keep these podcast episode lengths to, but like the politics behind i'm sure like the studios most likely did not want to make a movie like this written by a woman about women they were probably like well then let's at least attach a well-known you know Accoladed man as the director onto it to try to you know bolster the the interest or something. But yeah, I'm really glad I picked this movie. Like I said, new beginning doesn't necessarily mean it's a good beginning, but, but they definitely took their lives in an entirely different direction. So we'll have the perfect segue for us if you're if you want to hear it. One of the first times that I heard this movie referenced was when I watched the movie musical, Rent, because in one of the songs, they there is the line like Thelma and Louise did when they got the blues. And... I was like, what is that about? How interesting. And the reason that's the perfect segue is because next week our theme is musical films. Chandler, do you do you have yours?
1: I I I saw in between like five. Uh
0: do you have yours? Between five. I do have mine. I found it only fitting since I am currently on the national tour of Chicago that I pick the Chicago musical movie from 2002 to talk about.
1: Why do I think of that? I was I was talking with my partner. We're we're all very much friends and and we were brainstorming like what would Adam pick? And I was like I picked things that like I could totally see Adam picking and I Did not for once think about that you would pick Chicago and it just makes so much sense and it's so infuriating. (laughs) I had way too many. I had way too many that I was
0: thinking about and I was like, I need to make this easy for myself.
1: (laughs) You know what? I'm going to pop us back then for my choice to 1974 with a much lesser known film musical known as Phantom of the Paradise. So this is like before, like Phantom of the Opera fame and stuff like that, and it's Brian De Palma and Paul Williams and in like a really notorious craftsmen of art and such. It's it's going to be a trip of a movie. I I warn it now because it's the seventies era of rock movies where it's like. The Rolling Stones have made like a music video movie thing because that was popular then and such like that. Like it's got those vibes of the 70s. So it it will be a trip. But yeah, that, that'll do it for us this week with Resonant Reels. Please like, subscribe, follow us on all the platforms. Give us comments about movie ideas you think's good for us. More comments about these movies because I, I, there's so much to talk about with these further. Like It's another one of those where I feel like we've scratched the surface of Thelma and Louise especially again because there's just so much to talk about such a cultural icon of a film. But yeah, let us know if you want to hear more and everything like that. Awesome. Well, I've been Adam. I've been Chandler. And we'll see you guys next week.